If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. During lockdown, the author Kate Moss set out on her own detective story, investigating her family tree to unearth the forgotten life of her great-grandmother, Lily Watson, a fellow novelist. At the same time, Kate started a social media campaign, hashtag Women in History, through which she soon uncovered many more lives that she felt were worth telling. Kate has now brought some of these unheard and little-known stories from women's history together in her book Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries. And she took Emily Briffitt on a quick tour around the world to meet some of the many characters she encountered. We're going to be talking about your new book, Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries. And your book opens with actually a very personal journey into the past, into the life of your great-grandmother, Lily Watson. She seems to have inspired you in your writing and some of your book follows your progress in a sort of detective story fashion as you find out a bit more about her. So to start off with, can you introduce us to Lily? Of course. And yes, and this book is absolutely um, a book of two parts in that it's a love letter to history and a question to myself about what is history and who gets to make it and who gets to decide what matters. And I've used as the spine to ask those questions um, and to tell the story of nearly a thousand women, uh, my own detective story into my great grandmother's life. And this came about because I discovered during lockdown that although I'd always known 
that there was somebody in my family who wrote. It was always um, said like that, you know, not as if it was a profession or serious or significant, but very much, you know, as if she was doing the flowers in church on a Sunday, she wrote, you know. Um, But what I discovered during lockdown, because I had a bit more time, that in fact, my great-grandmother, Lily Watson, who was born in 1849 and died in 1932, was a really well-known novelist in her day. I mean, she was famous. Um, She wrote 14 novels, many volumes of poetry and devotional works. She was a correspondent for Girls' Own Paper, uh, which later became a woman's own. And she was a woman of great significance in her time. And when her most famous novel, The Vicar of Langthwaite, published in 1893, there was a letter to the Times from the Prime Minister himself, Gladstone, saying it is to be celebrated that there is a new uh, novel from the great Lily Watson. But when I went looking for her, she's vanished. She's just nowhere. Her name doesn't appear in any dictionaries or encyclopedias about Victorian literature. Uh, Her books are all entirely out of print. She has left not a single footprint in the sand. And that was really shocking to me because in a way you tend to think that the women who were not in history is because nobody knew about them. But of course, there are two completely different things. Some women were known about in their day and they vanished. And my great-grandmother was one of those. So I thought, well, I am going to walk in her footsteps and try and piece back together um, a writer's life from the Victorian and Edwardian period. And I did okay. It was quite hard to track her down. What would you say has uncovering her life meant to you? Well, I don't really think of it like that, truthfully. I mean, I think it's it reminds me that talk to the people that you love when that you've got them, because I loved my father very, very much. He died in 2011 and uh, my mother died in 2014. Um, His sister, uh, my aunt, died um, a couple of years after that. And I so much want to now go back to them and said, how much do you remember about your granny? Um, I have all these letters. Uh, A second cousin found a trunk of letters, nearly 500 letters and family trees and notelets, um, which... She found two weeks before I was due to give the book in, which, of course, was brilliant, but it would have been so great to have had them earlier. Um, I mean, it's the researcher's dream to find a hidden cache of of letters, of course, but, you know, um, I didn't have much time to really catalogue them properly or go through them. Um, But it did absolutely make me think, I wish I'd known more of this when people who knew her were around to ask. And I was very close to my granny, my father's mother. Uh, She died in 1981. And... She was clearly beloved of Lily. Uh, Lily married her Sam uh, just a few weeks before her 21st birthday, and they were married until Sam's death in 1921. They had six children. Um, My granny was the youngest of them by 20 years. And there was a family secret hidden within all of this that I discovered as I came across an extraordinary family tree that had only some people mentioned in that. But it's that, I suppose, that what it's meant to me is just a reminder that talk to the people you love while you've got them because there's no way there's nobody alive who knew Lily there's no one I can ask and because she's vanished from the history books like so very many women uh, trying to piece her life back together has been very challenging it's been very rewarding but very challenging but this is what history is about history is about putting everybody back in the record not just a very partial view of the world and what matters in the world. Another one of your 
inspirations, another important inspiration for your book is the Women in History Twitter campaign. Could you just introduce us to what this is as well? When uh, we were in the longest and darkest, for many of us, lockdown of uh, January 2021, I was publishing a novel and I enjoy publication because I enjoy going out and about and meeting readers. For me, in a way, the book is finished when it's in readers' hands and you start to have the conversations uh, between you. And I've been loving the Warrior Queens tour and so many women and lots and lots of men coming along to talk about the book and talk about the women that they think should be in history. So I wanted to do something positive. And so I simply put out on social media um, a question. Who do you think is the one woman from history you would like to celebrate or you think should be better known? And I asked a few friends. Uh, so the historian Bethany Hughes uh, said Theodora of Byzantium. Uh, Professor Kate Williams said uh, the Japanese uh, novelist Murasaki Shikibu, who was the first uh, novelist uh, Japanese in the uh, medieval period. Uh, Lee Child said the women of the Special Operations Executive. Uh, Anthony Horowitz said the great Greek leader of the independence war against the Turkish um, Turkish invaders, Laskarina Bubalina. And so it went on. And so I put it out on Twitter and Instagram. And within days, I had thousands of nominations from people from all over the world. And many of them, of course, I did know, but many, many more I didn't. So a Chinese woman, a young Chinese woman saying, have you heard of the Chinese poet Ding Ling, who was incarcerated by the communist regime in the, the 30s, 40s, 50s? A woman in Saudi Arabia saying, do you know the Egyptian feminist Huda Shawawi, who came back from the Women's Suffrage Conference in 1923 and took off her veil at Cairo railway station? Now, 99 years later, we are watching the brave women and girls of Iran and the brave men and boys supporting them, fighting for the same right to decide what they wear. Now, I didn't expect it to explode in the way that it did, but it gave me great hope because what it made me feel was that, firstly, that we understand that history matters, that we know who we are because of where we've come from, and so therefore if history is partial or distorted or deceitful, then we don't have the opportunity to put things right in the present day, or we are being sold as kind of a song, if you like. But most normal people, and I mean normal people like all of us, want harmony and do want to celebrate people rather than pull them down. And it was just a joyous thing to me that these thousands and thousands of names all flying through the air. And that was, of course, the genesis of the book um, before I went in search of my great-grandmother. Were there any particular nominations that stood out to you, whether for the person's enthusiasm in trying to promote them or for a fascinating history maybe that you hadn't heard? Oh, so many, so, so many extraordinary women. You know, I, I've been paddling around as a researcher and historian monkey and writing historical fiction and obviously um, promoting and amplifying women's voices for all of my adult life. And I'm in my 60s now. So I was astonished so, so many people. And of course, that's, of course, partly because I'm, I, I only speak English and French, so I am dependent on uh, other people translating from almost every other language, well, in the world, of course. Um, so I was extremely um, excited to hear about the Mongolian princess Kutulan, uh, who was in the period of time that I write about in my period, uh, my novel Labyrinth. Um, she was born in about 1260. And she was the great granddaughter of Genghis Khan. 
And she was the daughter of Kaidu Khan. And by this stage, the Mongolian Empire was falling to pieces and there was a battle for power at the heart of it. And as she grew up, she became her father's most trusted commander, not one of his many sons. But the story that I loved about her was that she said she would marry, provided the man could meet her, beat her in a wrestling match. Now, this isn't quite as uh, off the wall as it sounds, because wrestling is the Mongolian national sport and men and women are both uh, involved in it. But the, the legend goes on that she said, you know, and if he loses, um, he must give me some say a hundred horses, some say a thousand horses. And history has it that she ended up with a herd of 10,000 horses because she was the great wrestler of her day. Now, that is a wonderful story anyway, but it's a very interesting uh, story for what happens next. And it's this, that she fades from history. Her role as her father's right-hand person is forgotten. But then in the 17th century, and then and particularly the 18th century, Orientalist, as they would have been called, François Petit de la Croix, writes a story called Turandot, a Turkish princess. So already the name is different and the place is different, but it's inspired by the life of Cthulhu. And this story is taken up and taken up. And finally, in 1924, of course, becomes the opera that most people know, Turandot by Puccini. But by that stage, she has become a gentle, feminine, passive creature who sets her suitors riddles. And that, for me, was fascinating because it's also the idea of what is appropriate and womanly, whereas the real Catulan is a strong fighter. But by the time she is uh, diluted into the art, if you like, she's become a woman who sits in an ivory tower, uh, you know, not, not moving with no physicality or agency of herself. So that, again, tells us quite a lot about history and how women are seen in history, that often women who are seen as not female enough or not feminine enough are written out and other women are promoted, you know, because they are doing appropriately female things, whether that, you know, whatever they might be. Have you seen any common threads throughout these women's stories? You've had so many names. Are there any commonalities you could draw out? That's a lovely question. And it's it's one that I had to kind of ask before I started writing the book, because, of course, there is, you know, in the most simplistic way, the temptation is to just go chronologically or just go, OK, we're now get, we're going to do Africa first, obviously, or we're, now we're going to go to the Pacific Rim and Australasia. Or now we're going to come to your, you know, do it like that. But as I got more and more nominations and I did more and more research looking into the stories, I realised that, in fact, what worked was grouping people by discipline, if you like. So there are 10 chapters, the first and longest of which is the writers, because, of course, if women are not allowed, either by law or by society's traditions, to write, then women's stories will be lost, of course. It will be entirely dependent on men writing about women that they admire. And you can see the dangers of that when you look at someone like Theodora of Byzantium, where the, you know, the, the great historian Procopius uh, wrote three different versions of biographies of Theodora. One, she is essentially a harlot and a prostitute. One, she is kind of all right. And the third, she is a great grand dame. It's the same woman, but the, the man he has a completely different attitude to her. So obviously the writers are a big old chapter 
And of course, I'm sure many of your listeners and you will know that, you know, you could never be completely sure, but it is said that the first named writer in history was a woman, Enheduanna, um, in the 23rd century uh, BCE in Samaria, in Ur, you know, the city of Ur. Um, and so that, of course, was the first chapter. But there are chapters on women in the law, women of courage and conviction, warrior queens and pirate commanders, women of faith, women in conservation. And this seemed to make more sense. And with once I had done that, there were commonalities. Once you take away the comp- obviously complete differences of time and epoch and culture and land of origin and ethnicity and religion, all of those those variables. I think you could say that the women in this book had, um, how can I put it? They had determination that every single one of them, whether they are a quiet revolutionary changing the whole library system or, or setting up Boots Lending Library, Florence Boot, the wife of Boots the Chemist's uh, man. Um, those people who quietly have significantly changed the world, but whose names we don't know. Um, whether they're those or the warrior queens that we do know, you know, Melisande of Jerusalem, Joan of Arc, Elizabeth I, you know, we, we could say all of those, those names, that they all had a determination that they were going to do the thing they wanted to do. And all of them had obstacles in their way. Uh, the great Shirley Chisholm, who was the first uh, black woman uh, to stand for uh, the Democratic nomination and presidency of the United States, said famously, if they won't give you a seat at the table, bring your own folding chair. And I think that that is true for every woman in the book of every era, that they just kept going. You're saying that these women have this really strong conviction, whether that be for causes they believe in, or even their own sort of self-confidence and their, their own courage. Could you dive into maybe a few of the examples of what has this conviction looked like for women through the past? It looks different at every blink of the eye, if you like. In a way, we understand we understand physical courage or courage in war or resistance, and, of course, that's why Lee Child mentioned the women of the Special Operations Executive and Anthony Horowitz mentioned Lascarina Bubalina, uh, you know, leading the um, blockade of, uh, of the harbour at Spetses against the Turkish fleet. The only woman, in fact, to have ever been made an admiral in the Russian Navy, Lascarina Bubalina. Um, and so we understand that and we understand, you know, I think many of us will have the image of Joan of Arc, who was um, executed um, in 1431, but many of us have the image of her in that extraordinary scene in George Bernard Shaw's play, St. Joan, with this one tiny woman standing surrounded by 14 male inquisitors. So we understand that kind of courage. Or the great, uh, you know, um, Winner Cooper, um, the great Maori leader uh, walking uh, to Parliament, um, campaigning against the theft of Maori lands and, and land rights. So we understand those things. Sophie Schull, the White Rose, uh, in Germany, standing strong against the Nazi oppression. But what I think it also looks like is the women who sit in a lecture room. So let's talk about the Edinburgh Seven, who were a group of female doctors led by Sophia Jex Blake, who had to every day 
at Edinburgh University, walk past men and students as, and, and tutors as well, jeering, sometimes throwing mud, uh, making comments about their sexuality, about their looks, uh, stealing their papers. So that continual undermining of a woman wanting to fulfil her potential. And how daft is that? Because we need doctors. You know, we need doctors. In the 1901 census, there were 1,700,000 and dot, dot, dot female domestic servants and 12 doctors. So there is a catch-22, because in many cultures, men aren't allowed to touch women, but women weren't allowed to be doctors. So that is actually a death sentence for women. So it matters that women are doctors as well as men. Um, within the law, uh, the great Caroline Norton, Victorian campaigner, who had an extraordinary court case, which she actually won, but her husband uh, was clearly abusive and he refused to give up her children, continued to take her earnings, which he had. The rules of couverture essentially meant that a, a wife had fewer rights than the servants that she employed. And Caroline Norton just refused to accept it. She just refused and she kept going in the face of incredible opposition and humiliation and derision and attempts to traduce her character and brought in, you know, was involved in bringing in three hugely important bits of legislation for women, not least of all the Married Women's Property Act in 1870. So all of these things are just illustrations of why women were de determined to keep going because they knew that women's lives would be radically changed if women were in the room. You know, the great Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying women belong in places, all the places where uh, decisions are made. I'm slightly paraphrasing that one. So that's what I loved about the book, that the quiet revolutionaries um, have made just as much difference to women's lives and by extension, the health of all of us as the people with the flags on the horse at the front of the parade, you know. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And people know that Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955. That is all true. And it was an absolute significant turning point. But Rosa Parks did not refuse to give up her seat because, as the myth was put out, she was tired. She did not give up her seat because she was tired of giving up her seat. So immediately that's a very significant difference. She also was by far not the first woman to do that. And that doesn't in any way make the difference to it. It was the tipping point. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. 
Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. From what we've just spoken about, about women pushing to have their voices heard for other women, what would you say have been the most significant contributions or innovations women have made over the last hundreds and hundreds of years? I think it's it's very hard because when, when I look back through the book, I fall in love with them all all over again. And I think, oh, Lord, you're amazing. You know, and then I read about Annie Patchen, the Tibetan uh, nun who stood firm against the Chinese invasion of Tibet and spent, you know, many, many years in prison. And when they finally released her, she went straight back out and carried on campaigning. So every every chapter of the book is just bristling with extraordinary women. But I think that... Within women's stories, as opposed to uh, the broader story of social history or political or geopolitical history. So I'm putting aside war and resistance because I think that they are very often women and men fighting side by side because the whole world has always been women and men fighting side by side. And it's very important to say that this book is not about taking out the brilliant and beautiful men who've made the world. It's about putting the beautiful, brilliant women in with them because it has always been a joint venture. But I do think in the areas of medicine and the law, um, it is very, very significant because uh, we know that if you don't have a significant number of women in those areas, then women will die, quite literally, in the case of medicine. And in law also quite literally. So the the, the great Indian um, lawyer and educationist, whose surname is Fuel, and I can never say it, P-H-U-L-E, she set up many schools for women and orphans, you know, children that were literally being left to die. Um, and I think these things are, are incredibly important because they can be overlooked and seen as slightly less uh, world-changing, but they do change the world because if you change a woman's life and health and give her agency then everybody benefits. Children benefit, the men around them benefit. You know, patriarchy is a system that benefits no women and almost no men. It's as simple as that, really. So for me, many of those lawyers and many of those doctors, I would say in the modern times as well, I would say environmentalists and conservationists, uh, much of the environmental movement is being led by extremely young and principled girls and young women. And they are putting themselves in danger 
every day. And that leads on to something that I think is really significant in this is there's essentially kind of three ways of looking uh, about women in history, how they vanish. The first is there were no women. And that's quite easy to refute. So then the next thing is, okay, there were some women, but they weren't doing anything. And that, of course, is quite easy to refute. This is why books matter and why research matters and why saying, well, there are, and let me introduce you to a couple. And then the next, the third one is is this. Okay, there were women there. They were doing something, but only one or two of them. And it's what I've come to think of as the myth of the exceptional woman. The best example of that I can give you is the great, absolutely the great, Rosa Parks. Now, most people know her name. Most people know about the racist Jim Crow laws of uh, the southern states of America, which uh, afforded second-class citizenship to black men and other men of colour and black women and other women of colour. And people know that Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955. That is all true. And it was an absolute significant turning point. But Rosa Parks did not refuse to give up her seat because, as the myth was put out, she was tired. She did not give up her seat because she was tired of giving up her seat. So immediately that's a very significant difference. She also was by far not the first woman to do that. And that doesn't in any way make the difference to it. It was the tipping point. But she worked for the NAACP. She was extremely influential, uh, clever, brilliant, legal brain. And she was the right person to spearhead that campaign. Nine months before Claudette Colvin, a 15-year-old pregnant, unmarried young woman, refused to give up her seat, but wasn't seen as an appropriate person. Many, many other women were what are known as freedom riders, not least of all the great Pauli Murray, who in 1944 had refused to give up her seat and had actually gone and become trained. And later she became the first uh, black female Episcopalian priest um, in the United States. And she described herself as an in-betweener, neither a woman nor a man. And she was not seen as an appropriate person. So that is a really interesting illustration that there have always every single woman who has achieved something extraordinary, all of us, as with every single man, are following in other people's footsteps. And so it became just as important for me to put the other women back around the one exceptional woman to say that, you know, it is the old fashioned idea, united we stand. And that became very important to me in the writing of the book. Something you spoke about earlier was there are, it's part of your book, there are undeniably some fierce queens and commanders. And these are often ones that are particularly well known or people aspire to emulate in some way. Why do you think we have perhaps an obsession with maybe these characters as opposed to the quiet scientist or the small town revolutionary? Well, because I think for much of human history, the discipline of history has been written by men and it's mostly been about war, war and religion. <laughs> so it's, it, it's a, if you like, history is, is based on belligerence um, in one way or another. So I, I think that that's a kind of slightly flippant answer, but I, I think there's an element of truth in that. Um, it, of course, means it is that they are the women that are visible, but it underlies the importance of the arts 
many of the people that we know from history, we actually know because of uh, artists writing about them or painting them or composing music to them or poetry about them. So the reason that most people know Cleopatra is Shakespeare, if you think about it, you know. This is the fundamental importance of why the arts matter so much to history. Everything is about storytelling in one way or another, but it is those people that have been raised up and given um, prominence, if you like, that we remember. So that's why we are obsessed with them, just because we've been told that they are the ones that matter. And that's the thing, that people know Elizabeth I. They know Catherine de' Medici. They know, well, some people know Jeanne d'Albret, if you're, you know, if you're interested in French history. If you're interested in Russian history, you know Catherine the Great. So the history of women has been very, very exclusively the history of queens and commanders because broader history has been the history of kings and commanders. So in a way, it's the values that matter. But of course, there are many quiet and lovely men transforming the world, scientists particularly, you could say in that. Um, and in science, this, this lack of women being visible is known as the Matilda effect. Uh, it's a phrase coined by the American science historian Margaret Rossiter in the 1990s. And it, it's named for the American suffragist uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who wrote a big history of the women's suffrage movement in America in the late 19th century. And it's the phenomenon by which, because all science writing was pretty much by men, they just didn't believe that women were doing anything. So even when you had someone like Lise Meitner, who famously was denied the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1944, and it was given to her co-conspirator, if you like, Otto Hahn, even though Otto Hahn had said, we did this. Um, she's kind of one, of one of many, many examples in science. The fossil hunter, Mary Anning, who is now much better known thanks to literature, thanks to films, thanks to the wonderful Mary Anning Rocks campaign, um, and there's now a statue to her in Lyme Regis. Uh, but all of her extraordinary work with fossils was attributed to the men who bought them from her. So this is why we are missing so many women, because the people writing just didn't see us, if you like. I mean, I say us, I have very little to author, but uh, novels. Um, but, you know, there are, you know, there are extraordinary people in the book. But, you know, that that's that's it. There's always been a focus on on war and faith. And women, these are two areas where women have quite often been excluded. So just briefly, just focusing in on on the arts then. How have the arts helped women's stories come forward? And a second part of the question would be, I think when we think of novelists and female novelists, we tend to think Jane Austen, the Bronte sisters, Mary Wollstonecraft. But could you introduce us to a few of your favourites and perhaps less well-known writers? Of course. Um, well, I'd start off with Phyllis Wheatley, who was an enslaved woman taken to America, obviously stolen and taken to America when she was only seven. And Phyllis is the name of the ship, the slave ship that she was carried on, hence her name. But she was an extraordinary poet. And her, I mean, this terrible, terrible kind of phrase, isn't it? But the, the people who owned her at that moment um, could see her talent and had to go to London to get her work published. This is in the 18th century. But she's the first black woman poet and the first black woman published in history that we know of. 
So she's an extraordinary woman. I would recommend her. I would recommend, if people don't know, obviously my great-grandmother, uh, Lily Watson, though you can't find her book, so that's a, that's a hard to sell. Murasaki Shikibu, who is the novelist that um, Professor Kate Williams recommended to me, she wrote this, in a way, what you could call a soap opera of women's lives in the medieval period. This great, and it was extraordinary, she wrote it in the language, you know, in, in Japanese rather than Chinese, which was the language of the court. Um, she was extraordinary. Christine de Pizan wrote what I think of as the original Top Girls, you know, Carol Churchill Top Girls in, in the 1980s, I think it was. Um, Christine de Pizan, a, a French writer, wrote extraordinary searing works about women's lives and the confinement of women's lives. Ding Ling, the Chinese poet, talking about daughters and why daughters should be allowed the same opportunities as, as their brothers. The extraordinary, I think, Jewish-Italian poet, writer, Rachel Luzetto Mopergo, who wrote with great desperation, the first woman to write in Hebrew for 2,000 years, and, of, and I'm afraid, predictably, nobody believed a woman had written. So it's too much. Women can't write in Hebrew. But she signed one of her poems, Rachel Morpurgo, uh, wife of Jacob Morpurgo, stillborn, because of her lack of, you know. So in the book, there are so many extraordinary writers and from many, many different cultures. And that has been wonderful just to see writings from all over the world, of course, because, as you say, everything is about context and about comprehension and about understanding the world in which people were writing and trying to publish. But at the same time, there are common themes. And it's still a transgressive act for women and girls to write. It still is seen as an act of defiance in some places. So to keep reminding ourselves that women have had to fight for the right to be published is important too. Nothing just happens. Now, this is a question for you then. And this is this potentially a very difficult or contentious question for you. If you could nominate one woman yourself to share their story, who would you choose? Well, it's, it's not really contentious because if the heart of the book is my great-grandmother and I finished the book with writing the equivalent of a Wikipedia entry for her because I was really stunned to discover that 90% of uh, people posting on Wikipedia are male. And that tells you a great deal about how there is still an invisibility. And truthfully, actually, women need to step up. We can't sit here uh, and complain about that. It, you know, we could be acting. And um, only 19% of biographies on Wikipedia are of women. So the disproportion still continues. So, of course, I would put uh, my great-grandmother. What I did discover was that my her daughter, not my granny, but another one of her daughters, is in Wikipedia. And she was a novelist, and she published more than 60 novels. Her name was Winifred, but she published under the pen name Pamela Wynne. And they were considered very steamy in their day. And some of them had the most hilarious titles, like one of them was Anne's an Idiot. <laughs> and they were all about, you know, young, impressionable girls going out to India and falling in love with unsuitable men and, you know, having a terribly rude awakening when, you know, they turned, to, turned out to be uh, alcoholics or, you know, uh, preferred uh, the company of other ladies or gentlemen. Um, but, they're, 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 you know, that, that was very interesting to me because, again, I, I, I didn't really know that side of the story. But I would certainly, you know, I, you know, I finished the book with putting 
my great-grandmother back into history. And I am still trying to persuade my wonderful publishers to um, reissue at least her most famous novel. With that, as a final question to you, just to summarise almost what we've spoken about the whole way through, but why do you personally think it's so important to write women back into the story? Well, I think um, it's common sense, isn't it? We know, because we look around us, that women and men exist together. Together, we built the world. If you leave out half of the people who've contributed to the world, you're just not telling the whole story. And without the whole story, we don't know what's possible. We don't really know where we've come from and we don't know who we are. And we see repeatedly politicians of all political hues using dishonest history to justify prejudice and bigotry and lack of fairness in the present day. So trying to put the record, not straight, but to, if you, if you like, shine a light on all of it, like Shirley Chisholm, adding all the folding chairs at the table, will give us a much better sense of sustained societies that are good for many people, not just a few, will give us a chance to have a world where people are judged on what they say and what they do, not the colour of the skin or what they look like or what faith they are. You know, we can see that politicians use division to sow discord in order to shore up their own power. But history can help us change that narrative. And it will give all of us a voice and all of us power. Because in the end, I'm still an old-fashioned idealist. I think let's try to leave the world a little bit better than when we came into it. And that means men and women changing the world together. That was Kate Moss. Her book, Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries, is out now, published by Pam Macmillan. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.